Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Matthew 11 through 12 and Luke chapter 11. We begin in chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. So he commands the disciples and then he goes, you'll notice he doesn't go on vacation. He went roundabout to teach and to preach in the cities roundabout, which implies that when you go on a mission or when you're on the Lord's errand, there's an element of work and sacrifice involved. Reminds me of Alma, the Book of Mormon, where it says he could not rest and he gets up and goes out and shares the gospel. And there's something compelling that when there's so much good news and so much goodness from God that you've experienced, it's hard just to sit back. You feel compelled, excited, energized, inspired to get out and share with others. Yeah, and so now this, this next part that he he's going to give a tribute to John in uh, starting in verse 7. So we've already covered from Mark the passage of the disciples of John coming to ask that question uh, in verse 2 through 6, and if you jump down to verse 7, and as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And then he makes an interesting statement about John the Baptist in verse 9. He says that John was more than a prophet. He tells you he was this, this messenger sent before his face, uh, which shall prepare the way. Look at, uh, look at John the Baptist from this perspective. So he's out in the wilderness, he rises in popularity among the, the people who come to, to be his disciples, he teaches them, he baptizes them, and then what does he do? Jesus comes along and he doesn't feel any sense of competition with Jesus. It's, it's not about numbers for John, it's not about building John's kingdom, it's about preparing the way for the Lord. I love the story here of John the Baptist, how he takes all of the people who are now following him and he points them to Christ with the intent that John is actually going to decrease as Jesus increases in the number of disciples, and he's okay with that. It's Once again, it's not a spirit of competition for John. Oh, that we could all be more like John the Baptist and not not be in this uh, head-to-head competition trying to get more, whether it's more money or more fame or more honor, more positions, more power, but rather anything that we have, we offer it to the Lord Jesus Christ and we give it to him willingly, freely. So the two great prophets of the ancient Israelite prophetic tradition would have been, not would have been, but are Moses and Elijah. We saw in a previous episode 
that Jesus is like the new Moses. When he gets on the, ser- on the mountain to deliver the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's as if it's a new Moses who's delivering an upgrade to the law of Moses that was known in the ancient Israelite past. Elijah also, and, and so Moses was this popular, very well-known prophet uh, among the Israelites and in Jewish history. So people were looking for this new Moses. Elijah also was very well known for doing wonders, miracles, and for zealously defending God and preaching God. And of course, we also know Elijah spent a lot of time out in the desert. He was also not dressed super finely, uh, ate locusts and honey and so forth. And so John shows up, and he is a bit of an Elijah. And that's what we learn from Jesus, that Jesus sees John as this Elijah character who's preparing the way. And out of interest, you might connect this to the restoration. But Elijah shows up again in the restoration, where he is preparing the way yet again for God's kingdom to flourish. So we have Elijah in the Old Testament helps God's kingdom flourish. We have an Elijah character in the New, in the New Testament who helps God's kingdom flourish. And now in our day, Elijah has returned again. And we get this from Jesus, that Elijah is now embodied symbolically in the person of John. Don't you love the fact that John also came in the Restoration uh, and he comes to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and delivers his keys, the keys of the, the Aaronic priesthood, the power to baptize. And so both of these characters preparing the way by giving what they have once again, to uh, the prophet in order to build up the kingdom of God on the earth. Look at verse 11, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's, he's doing this comparison on earth, of all the prophets who were born, there is not a greater one than John the Baptist, but he's still less than the least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, a, a nice comparison here. If you stop and analyze John the Baptist's life for a minute, he was born of very aged parents. Tradition holds that he's going to be raised by his mother uh, from a very young age, and since she's so old, he probably becomes orphaned fairly young. He's not blessed with all of the, as Taylor was saying, all of the fineries of the world, whether it be in home or clothing or food. He seems to be on that fringe of society, and now he's out in this wilderness. He's, he's not the, the most famous. He's not the most well-favored, and yet God called him to do an amazing work. It makes me wonder how many of you who in your own life maybe have some serious challenges that you're dealing with, some of you who maybe are taking care of loved ones who have special needs or aged parents or a spouse who is struggling and it feels like you, you, you aren't able to have all of the, the pleasures or the joys of this life whether it be through travel or through a, a big house or nice clothes and fancy cars, and yet 
God asks you in the face of, of great trial and tribulation to, to yourself and to your family to do his work and to teach and to lift and to build when it sometimes feels like you have no resources and yet it's often those people that God will call to do his work or perhaps it's not with other people that you're taking care of. Perhaps it's you yourself who maybe don't have the greatest health. Maybe you're sick with a, a disease or maybe you've had some physical or mental or emotional setbacks and yet God still calls you to do his work. I, I love the fact that if you look at the history of the world and through the prophets, often it's it's people who are struggling in one way or another that God calls to perform great works, great miracles, and they put what they have forth on the altar, they, they go to work, and somehow God multiplies and magnifies those efforts and makes them what they need to be. And I think if John the Baptist were here, he wouldn't say, it's not about what you're wearing, it's not about where you live, it's about what you're doing to build the kingdom of God on the earth and to lift people up and point them to Christ that really ultimately matters, which I think prompts Jesus saying, there hath not been a greater than John the Baptist because nobody seems to be more content and able to point people to him, to, to Jesus, than does John. It's interesting that Jesus contrast this with other people who in their own minds thought they were building the kingdom of God, self-appointed, and tried to do so by using violence. So, you look at chapter uh, verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent taketh it by, take it by force. So, if you look at the Jewish history from the time of Jesus and even before, there are people who tried to create a violent overthrow against the Romans or even Jewish authorities. And it turns out those efforts ultimately failed and caused the scattering and destruction of the Jewish society. And I see this as an invitation for all of us to say, well, how is God asking us to build the kingdom of God? Does he ask us to go out there and violently force people to accept his will? No. Like John, you spend the time, you get the call, and you teach, you preach, you witness. You are a window to Jesus, just like John was. So we have a few more verses here, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus uses an analogy. It's a great teaching technique to get his audience to understand the role of John and also to help people. I would say it's kind of like a soft way for them to repent. But he's saying, John showed up teaching a message, and you guys missed the message. It's now time to open your ears and pay attention. So again, if you are in a teaching circumstance, you can be very direct with people and just tell them, things as it is, or you can use metaphors or analogies to get them to think in new ways without being super direct. There's various ways of being a good teacher, and Jesus employed a variety of methods, and analogy is one of them. So now watch as he, he makes this contrast in verse 18, 19. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a devil. So they assumed he's different than us, so, so he's clearly possessed of a devil, you, you can't trust him. And then in contrast, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. 
So he's, he's making this indictment on the people who are making false judgments on both John and the Son of Man, and, and he's saying, stop, stop with the judgment. Stop assuming you understand. Now, he goes on to verse 20, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. So he, he gives them all these miracles, but it doesn't lead to a spiritual miracle where they actually repent and become more converted to the gospel and enter into deeper covenant connection with God. So he, he lists them out here in 21, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So how is he catching their attention using these particular Tyre and Sidon? Wow, because Tyre and Sidon are up on the Mediterranean sea coast uh, to the northwest of the Galilean region. These are Gentile lands. These are kind of resort towns, places where people would go on vacation out to, to enjoy the, the sea air, but they're dominated by Gentiles, and he's saying, look, if I had done these great works among those Gentiles, they would have they would have been in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But you, who are of the house of Israel, you're seeing these miracles and you're becoming desensitized to them. And then he, he gives them the judgment. I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. So in verse 23, he adds Capernaum, his, his new hometown, his new home base to this list, and thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Have you, have you noticed that where much is given, much is required? Doctrine and Covenants section 82 verse 3, and he who sins against a greater light shall receive a greater condemnation. It's played out right here on the page. So if, you, if you're given all of these blessings, all of these opportunities, all of these signs and wonders, apparently that's not sufficient to convert you. It, it takes this, this discipleship, this effort to move forward on the covenant path to translate those gifts from God, all those blessings, into progression on the covenant path rather than just sitting there saying, what can, what can God do for me now as, as we just absorb the things that he has to give us rather than saying, like John, what can I do to give what I have? And John was not given much as far as this earth is concerned, but he gave it all, and it's a beautiful, beautiful pattern for us to consider. It's interesting how Jesus is responding to the people. They were accusing him back here in verses 17, 18, and 19. These accusations, if you're a prophet who's a glutton and a drunkard, this actually would be punishable by death according to the law of Moses. Or if you have a demon or a devil, again, punishable by death. Furthermore, if we look at verse 23, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah this phrase where Isaiah was preaching against Babylon, who had exalted itself to heaven but was going to be brought low, like the Babylonian king who wanted to exalt himself above the stars. He uses the same phraseology. 
that it doesn't matter who you are, where you live, God wants you in his kingdom, but if you try to build your own kingdom and establish that kingdom above God's kingdom, it will fall. It cannot stand. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be working hard at lots of variously good efforts and activities, but everything we should be doing should be for the intention to make God's work manifest, that people can see and feel God's love in their lives, that the world's just a better place. That's actually the hope I have on a daily basis. Am I making the world just a little bit better every day because I'm here in it? Or am I a detractor? Am I taking things away? So when I look at what Jesus is saying here, building out what Tyler said, it isn't enough just to see great wonders. God wants us to choose to believe in him and to see him. And when we choose to believe in God and see him, we are far more likely to see wonders. And we have learned again and again that wonders alone will not convert people. Conversion ultimately is a choice. So as we jump into verse 25, he says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. It's that idea that if we're, if we're wise and prudent in our own eyes, if, we're, if we get prideful or cocky in, in our learning, then it's as if the heavens are saying, okay, well, looks like you have things all figured out. Looks like you don't need our help. So go ahead and apply all that wisdom and all that knowledge. In the meantime, it's the symbol of the babes who recognize that they're ignorant, that they don't have all the answers, that they don't know all the things that they should be doing, that they need guidance and they need help, those are the ones to whom he delivers the message, the meek, the humble, the submissive, those who are willing to, to do all things that the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon them. It's a beautiful connection to, to many of these same doctrines over in the Book of Mormon. Uh, he, he uses – Jacob in the Book of Mormon uses this phrase where he says, to be learned is good if we hearken unto the counsels of God. So he wants us to learn. He wants us to expand our intellect and our knowledge and our uh, – in wisdom, but never to the point where we feel like we've arrived or like we're smarter than the prophets, seers and revelators, or than other people around us, and, and we look down on them with disdain because we know so much more than them. That's not a good position to be in. I, I had a bit of this experience, perhaps, when I was in graduate school. I was doing a graduate degree in religious studies of all things, where we were scientifically studying religion, world religions, and, and how people have religious experience. And it was super meaningful, and my colleagues were really amazing people who were deeply interested in, in how people had religious experience and, and how that impacted the world. And I remember one day I had this amazing conversation with my my fellow students in class, and later that evening, I got a call. Somebody in my ward needed, needed a blessing. I went over with the missionaries, and we had this really deeply spiritual experience uh, partaking of the priesthood of God in this blessing. And I remember writing in my journal that night, like, I'm not sure I could explain this 
in a reasonable way to my colleagues, who are quite reasonable people, but they didn't really quite have an, a mental apparatus for how God's work would be happening right now, today. And I remember thinking, like, yeah, sometimes at the college, uh, we act like we know more than everybody. And I remember feeling super humble that ultimately God does his work, even if I don't have a final explanation for how he does everything. I don't need an academic explanation for everything, even though it might, I might think it might be useful. Absolutely. Verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. By the way, if, if you pause there for a moment, think about that. Here's Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, God with us. He's condescended to come down to become like us, and yet he's not doing his own will. He's receiving all things that have been delivered unto him of his Father. He is on his Father's errand. He is doing his Father's business. This is not beyond us to, to try to pattern our life after the Master and his life, after Jesus Christ, to say, I want to do all things that Heavenly Father would have me do rather than being about my own business, doing my own errands, hoping that God will bless me and prosper me in doing my errands. How often do we kneel down and we give God the long laundry list of, of requests to say, okay, these are the blessings that I want from, from thee, this, 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 and we're commanded to ask, so don't, don't feel like that's a bad thing. What I'm asking here is, what kind of a difference would it make if occasionally we would pause in giving the Lord our laundry list in prayer? And what if we paused every once in a while and said, Heavenly Father, instead of telling thee what I want thee to do for me, please help me hear thy, thy voice giving me directions of what thou would have me do for thee and for, for my fellow brothers and sisters here on this earth. What, a, what an amazing contrast that might provide for us on occasion to try to get a list from heaven of what he would have us do rather than just always telling him what we want him to do for us. Which now leads us to one of my favorite three verses in the entire New Testament. In fact, if I had to pick a favorite uh, set of three verses, this would probably be it. It's Jesus' statement here, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There are so many burdens that laden your shoulders. Uh, some of them are related to relationships, some of them, again, are related to health or finances or your environment, political issues, uh, various regions of the world that different people live in have different challenges associated with that, but people bear heavy burdens and they're laboring under those burdens and he invites everyone to come to him. And then verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There's an implication there. 
You'll notice sometimes in your scripture study what we tend to do is we read the words of what was said and now translated into English. Isn't it fascinating to read between the lines and picture what wasn't said instead but is implied? In this case, when he says, take my yoke upon you, there's an implication here, one potential of many implications could be that the world has already offered you all kinds of yokes. The world has already burdened you and placed all kinds of expectations and burdens on your shoulders and you're carrying those, and he's saying, take my yoke upon you. Cast off the, these burdens of the world and take mine upon you. The implication of a yoke, if you look at oxen, there are two oxen in a yoke as they pull forward, sharing this load. If you want to use that analogy for this verse, he's inviting you into a covenant connection to be bound with him in that covenant, and now if you let him be in charge, if you let him preside in your life and in your home and in your family and in your ward, he will pull in the right direction and you just have to walk with him. You don't have to carry this alone. And you're planting the field of the kingdom of God. When you're working out in the field, and that's the symbol of the kingdom is, is the field. Beautiful. And then verse 29, look at the second line. So after he invites you to take his yoke upon you, he says, and learn of me. I don't know of any better way to learn of Jesus than by walking side by side with him in this yoke, because now we see how he walks, how he talks, how he treats people, how he handles every situation. So it's only when we enter into this covenant with him and walk that path with him that we can truly learn of him. And then he follows that up with, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. There was nobody ever born on this planet who could have had more reason to be prideful and haughty and puffed up. He has more power, more knowledge, more capacity than anybody or any combination of people ever born, and yet he says, I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. He doesn't, he doesn't take his capacities and his knowledge and allow those things to, to be puffed up into pride. He stays humble so that God can continue to use him to do God's work uh, according to God's own will and God's timing. And he, his promise, ye shall find rest unto your souls. I, I love that statement. I want to dwell on this learn of me just a bit more. So we've spent a lot of our careers in the field of teaching, and there are, just as a high-level summary, good teachers do a variety of things. They tell, the scriptures do this, they tell us all about Jesus, they show, and we see examples where Jesus is shown to be doing things that build the kingdom of God, and then, of course, there's the invitation for us to do. It's great that we read scriptures or that we see other people living the gospel. Ultimately, we want to be 
doing the gospel. So when he says, learn of me, it's more than just becoming familiar with scriptures. Where Jesus says, learn of me, I see one of the things he's asking us is to do the gospel. Yes, take the time to read and to see what's going on in people's lives. But also, I think we need to be a little more merciful to ourselves that as much as scripture study is super valuable, I think God also wants us to be spending more time engaging in learning of him by doing the gospel and practicing what he's invited us to do. That's a great reminder. And now you finish off chapter 11 with verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So to tie this in, Taylor, to the analogy of people saying, man, I, I just don't feel like I remember. I, I read the scriptures and I feel good. I, I learn some lessons and then I close them and I go about my life and then I can't remember what I read. Uh, the more you do that, the more you study and, as Taylor said, put it into practice, the more you learn not just by study but also by faith, by doing it, and it becomes your native language. And even if you can't quote a scripture or give a reference or remember exactly what came in what order, I don't I, – I could be wrong, but in, in the final judgment, I don't think it's going to be a final exam of multiple choice where you have to know the Greek and the Hebrew and all of the, the names and dates and places and orders. I think it's going to be who we've become. And so in your scripture study, perhaps the better question to be asking isn't, do I have the capacity to memorize this and to recall it perfectly? But perhaps you go to church, you go to the temple, you go to your scriptures, you go to prayer because you need to take another step forward now on the covenant path and you need to know where that step is and you know the sources for inspiration to light your path, to be a lamp unto your feet, and there the scriptures, church, the temple, prayer, and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily memorize it, you just need that inspired direction to keep moving forward today. And I love the these last three words of chapter 11 – or last three verses of chapter 11, 28, 29, and 30 because they feel so hope-filled. They feel doable. It doesn't feel overwhelming or exhausting. It's just take a step forward today to come a little closer to Christ, trust him a little more, learn of him, try to do the things he has shown us to do, and know that the more we do that, the more we will feel that burden become light. And instead of rolling our eyes next time you, you feel like you need to go and magnify a calling or go on a ministering visit or go to the temple, you smile and it becomes a delight because all of those things become a way for us to manifest our love for and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our partner in this covenantal yoke that is so beautiful and it's so um, inspired guiding us with those next steps moving forward. May the Lord bless all of us to more fully take his yoke upon us today, move forward one more step on the covenant path today, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.
So as we move into Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see the story again of Jesus being accused of his disciples' misdeeds. Well, Pharisees think the disciples are practicing misdeeds of working on the Sabbath. A couple of things to consider here, that if you were a master or a rabbi in this time, you technically were responsible for the actions of your disciples. Your job is to teach them how to live and what to do. But the Pharisees, I mean, it's kind of interesting. How many of you would be in a situation where you could even see somebody out picking grain and rubbing it in their hands? I mean, what are the Pharisees doing hanging out in this field on the Sabbath anyway? Like, I don't know, do they have binoculars? I don't think binoculars have been invented. So it's a strange story that the Pharisees, for whatever reason, are either following Jesus, waiting to catch him and his disciples doing anything that they think is wrong. And what we have here is a cultural conflict of sorts that the Pharisees have decided that the way to show love for God was X, Y, Z. And then they imposed their opinion on other people and claimed, oh, God agrees with us, therefore you're in the wrong. And over the years, as I've gotten a little more maturity, just a little bit, not as much as I think some people wish I had, I have realized that sometimes I've done that to others, where I have decided for myself something that is important to me in expressing my love for God, and if other people don't act that way, well, then they're not as good as I am or they are not really following God's path. And this is where we get these ideas of being pharisaical, of not imposing, that we shouldn't be imposing our culture or our opinions on people, but instead we should all be clear about what God wants and invite others to know what his will is and to live it. And again, we've already covered this story in a previous episode, but right after the grain incident out in the fields, he goes into their synagogue on the Sabbath day, and that's where he heals the man with the, the withered hand, according to Matthew's timing. And again, we've already covered this in a previous episode, but he's pointing out a fact that if you're not careful, you'll get so focused on the rules and the regulations that you miss the whole point, you miss the principle, you miss the spirit of the law that is intended to turn you heavenward to focus on God. As Taylor was talking, the Pharisees didn't seem to be focused heavenward when they were uh, upset that Jesus' apostles were rubbing this grain, harvesting this, this grain on the Sabbath day, and now he heals the man with the withered hand, and they are not happy with him, and he tells them that, the, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So in verse 8, right before the healing, he tells them, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And so you're supposed to do good. You're supposed to lift people up on that Sabbath day. I'm going to add to this. So I've worked in a variety of organizations and groups and associations, and sometimes I've thought about this. So every group and association, institution needs to have policies that guide us on making decisions. It actually simplifies decision-making process so we don't have to every single time re-decide, is this the right thing? So policies usually have been informed decisions from the past to guide us the future based on good principles. Yet at the same time, I know I've been in conversation in some of these organizations that we look at policies and we say, okay, there's a good reason for this. Ultimately, what's our larger mission? We're trying to serve people. Is there a reason why we can accommodate in this situation 
even though the policy says this, we're intending to serve, is there a way we can accommodate and serve? Many of us are in situations where we are in, have opportunities to serve and we might find ourselves in a bit maybe a friction point of some policies. And it might be useful in those moments to say to the group who makes decisions, can we accommodate serving people given the policies we have without breaking things that matter? And my experience has been that usually children of God have a way of getting creative inspiration from God to serve people while also maintaining principles that we care about. So along this line, uh, you'll notice, for instance, with the new For the Strength of Youth pamphlet that was introduced in last October's General Conference, it changed away from long lists of, of uh, policies, so to speak, and it became much more principle-based. Did you see the pattern here? You teach the principles and let the people govern themselves. You've maybe heard that, that concept taught by the prophet Joseph Smith, that people can figure out what they should and shouldn't do. Give them the vision, teach the true principles, and let them find their way within that. These principles, if you will, become the what. It's the vision. It's what you're trying to accomplish. And then at the local level, whether that local level may be the stake the, or the area, then the stake, then the ward, or the family or the individual gets to counsel together in love and righteousness to figure out the how, those policies, if you will. How do we put those principles into practice? What does it look like when the boots are on the ground, when we're living life, and the closer we can get to the individual to counsel with key people, the better in determining what those, those policies or practices may be. And I love how our church continues to move more and more and more towards teaching correct principles and letting people govern themselves at the more local levels. I think it's powerful. It's probably worth just a few more moments on this. In my limited experience of life, most of the conflict I see with people amongst themselves is often around hows. When you really fundamentally get talking to people about what drives them and even the whys of their life, like why, why do you exist? What motivates you? I remember living in Egypt years ago as a student, and I was down by the Nile one evening at sunset, and I remember this father just sitting with his son, his son may have been 10 years old, and the father just reaching his arm around and holding his son close as the sun sat. And I just sat there thinking, I don't know why it was so meaningful to me, but I'm like, but they're just people living here. These, these Muslims living in Egypt are just people like I've seen anywhere else, and I don't know why that was shocking to me, but they're just people trying to live the why of life, trying to find joy and happiness. They're how, maybe we're going to go sit by the Nile and watch sunset. Somebody else might want to be inside watching a fun show with family or playing games or being up in the mountains. But unfortunately, what happens is we experience in our own personal lives certain hows that give us joy in our whys and whats, and we think everybody else needs to do that. And so much of the conflict in institutions and politics and even religion is about the how. And this is what Jesus is dealing with. He's like, hold on, we're all trying to get to God, and whether you're walking on the Sabbath or rubbing grain, that's a how. We shouldn't lose our minds over this. 
So in your life, if you find that you're in conflict with people, maybe ask yourself, are we actually just debating hows and we just have different cultures? Because that's what I meant right before. Our hows are essentially cultures. And there are many beautiful and good cultures. And I think God is embracing of lots of beautiful, good cultures. So if you have a good culture, great. If somebody else has a good culture, it's great for them. But let's not make the world a worse place because we think there should just be a single culture. Ultimately, God will bring the final culture, the kingdom of God. But I think it's going to be far more expansive than most of us could ever imagine. Yeah, in the millennium, I suppose that he will bring a heavenly culture to share with us and and I don't know I don't know to what degree different uh, nations, kindreds, tongues and peoples will be able to retain some of their individual identities within that that celestial culture. But but for now, for now we don't need to uh, fight over the house. Fight over the how. In verse 38, certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, "Master, we would see a sign from thee." This is one of those interesting points where he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been showing miracles and signs and wonders all along, and now here these people come and say these certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees. You'll notice it's not all of the scribes, it's not all of the Pharisees, it's a certain number, and they're not all this way, but this certain come and say, Master, we would see a sign from the the implication here, the unwritten message or unspoken message from them is, if you'll show us a sign to prove that you have this power, then we'll believe what you're teaching. Are you noticing how it's the total opposite of the pattern of faith taught in the Book of Mormon? In Ether chapter 12, we learn that you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. God doesn't put on magic shows to get you to believe and to have faith and follow him. It doesn't work that way. It never has, and I suppose it never will. Miracles are given as evidence for trials of faith traditionally in scriptures, and even when they haven't been, it it doesn't change the culture. It doesn't change the people in a lasting way. We see that with Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon, seeing angels, hearing the voice of God, being shaken by power, it doesn't have a lasting effect. It only changes them for a moment to get them to then conform their behavior to whatever is needed at that moment, but it doesn't help them to become better disciples. And these guys seem to be blind. Like here we are in Matthew chapter 12. Have we seen any have, miracles Have at this you point? not seen what Jesus like, has done? Hold on. You're asking for a sign? I didn't do these things simply to do, like, amazing wonder works to titillate the brain, but I have already been showing you what the kingdom of God is like. It's a place of wholeness and goodness and healing, and yet you want more? So this is just a sad story, and I, I ask myself, where in my life have I received more than enough from God, and I'm still grasping and saying, oh, Lord, I need more before I'm willing to trust you? I know I've had those moments. Yeah, how often do we sit there at, at the, the phrase that comes to my mind for me is sometimes I become a spiritual spoiled brat where it's not enough. You need to give me more 
and, and you need to, to prove some things before I'm willing to go and do what I, what I already know I need to do. Um, now, in this context, he answers this group of certain scribes and Pharisees, and he tells them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Are, are you noticing that he just made a comparison? that it's an evil and adulterous generation that unrighteously seeketh after a sign? Stop and think about what does an unrighteous sign seeker have in common with a, a wicked and an adulterous person? An adulterer doesn't want to work for through the process of dating and courtship and marriage to then enjoy those physical relationships associated with marriage. They don't, they don't want to go to that effort. They want what they want right now without having to, to go through the due process that God has laid out. They don't they want responsibility. They don't want to take on the effort. They're lazy. And what does a sign seeker have in common with that? They don't want to have to go to the work of reading their scriptures day in and day out, going to church, serving in callings, or even entering into a covenant by being baptized and, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost and then pressing forward with a steadfastness in Christ, fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord in order for that testimony and that conversion to grow as an evidence of their faith having been tried and tested through a variety of, of life's uh, difficulties, they don't want any of that. They don't want to do that, that work. They just want you to do the work. Show me a sign that there's real power here, that God exists, or that, that uh, he actually cares about me, and then I'll engage, then I'll believe, when in reality history bears out that people don't then engage long-term when they see signs. In fact, the, the New Testament later on is going to tell us even the devils believe. E even the devils know about God's existence. They've seen lots of signs, they've seen lots of miracles, lots of wonders, and it's not seeming to help them much. Now let's jump over to chapter 11 in the Gospel of Luke. And you've probably noticed already that there are a lot of these concepts that we've already covered in Mark, now we've we skipped some of them in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to pick them up here in Luke because of the way he tells these particular stories. So in chapter 11, he gives a retelling of the Lord's Prayer that we already covered in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in, in a previous episode with Matthew. So let's jump down to verse 5 where, where Jesus tells a parable and he front-loads it in the Joe Smith translation with Heavenly Father giving us what we ask for when, when we're asking the right thing with faith, and he uses this, compar this parable drawing upon the tradition among the Jews of, of hospitality, and if at midnight some friend comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm in trouble, 
uh, a friend of mine showed up and it's midnight and I don't have anything to place before him. Can I, can I borrow three loaves of bread? His point is, you're going to give that to your friend. And if you will give that to your friend when it's very inconvenient, middle of the night, everybody's asleep, you're bedded down, you don't want to have to give your food that maybe you were needing for tomorrow, he's saying every one of you in this Jewish context would get up and give your friend that food. And then he finishes it with the most oft-repeated commandment in Scripture, verse 9, I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Can we pause here and say, many of you are probably thinking to yourself, really? Because I've been asking for something for a long, long time, and it hasn't been given. I've been seeking a blessing for me or a loved one for decades or for years, and it hasn't been granted. So how do we reconcile with this? I don't know the answer to all of those specific situations that, that prompt those questions. I do know this, however, that when I go to the Lord and I ask him for direction to know what to even desire, what to even ask for, and then when I ask in faith and then trust in him to place the timing of that prayer or that petition or that seeking, I put that into his hands, I'm never let down because it builds my faith, my trust in him that he knows what he's doing, not just in what he gives me, but how he gives it, when he gives it, where he gives it, and even why he gives it, and those prayers are all answered. I receive from the hands of the Lord what I most need as I fully submit and trust in him. It's only when I selfishly want something for my own purposes according to my own timing and my own desires and will, and when they don't get given, when I get frustrated with heaven. Let's go back to the plain reading here, because this is important what Tyler has mentioned. We've all, everybody I've ever known, has had moments where the prayers that they have asked for things have not been immediately answered the way they thought. We all could multiply examples of that. But let's also look again what he says. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. There's a very basic principle. If you don't ask, the answer is no. So if you don't seek for anything, you will simply stay in the current circumstances. So if you want something, you have to pursue it. You have to seek. You have to ask. It may be that things do not turn out the way you want. God will give you what you need. But again, this is a deeply powerful invitation that you have to be clear about what you want. And even you could be, Lord, I'm not sure what I need besides having more of your spirit in my life. I ask for that. Then in verse 13, he continues with, with an interpretation of this parable that he had shared. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? If you, if you notice that, Joseph Smith made an addition in verse 13 
where he says, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good gifts through the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? It's, it's this beautiful principle tied into what Taylor's saying. We, we've got to start there with the desires of our heart going to the Lord saying, I really want this. Now he casts out devils and the people who are watching, the, the leaders of the people who feel jealous, instead of celebrating with these people who had been possessed of devils, instead of going up to them and giving them a hug and saying, wow, it's good to have you back without that devil possessing you, welcome back to the synagogue and welcome into the fold, instead of celebrating with those that are celebrating and have cause to celebrate, they now turn with competition and comparison in their eyes, looking at Jesus saying, well, none of us are able to do that, and it's we're the leaders of the people, we're the ones who should be able to do that, and so he clearly must be bad. And so they tell in their minds, they say, well, he's just casting out these devils by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus, verse 17, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divideth against a house falleth. He's, he's sharing a really, really basic principle with them. Think about what you just said, or think about what you, your rationale is saying, that the devil came to cast out a devil from a person that another devil had overpowered. That, that makes no sense. The devils are trying to destroy people, and so if somebody from the, from the domain of hell has taken possession of somebody, the last thing another devil wants to do is cast him out. He, so he's using basic logic with these people, and then he finishes with verse 19, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. This is a really powerful reference. Immediately they're thinking about God's finger that wrote the tablets, the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. This is pretty unmistakable. For them, they all know God's kingdom was there with Moses, and here's one greater than Moses saying, I'm doing this power with the, by the finger of God. So sometimes in my fallen nature, I just wish I could go back in time and kind of watch this, and I, I kind of get a little glee of Jesus just kind of patiently saying, listen, guys, let me, let me just kind of teach you how your brains should operate. <laughs> <laughs> now, the rest of this chapter, many of the verses later on are covered extensively in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus invited all to come unto him and take his yoke upon us and to learn of him, to walk with him, and to stay on that covenant path. And that is our prayer for all of us as we move forward with greater faith today, this week, this month, this year, than we've ever done so before. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.